Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We've had a few good weeks in a row of great vaccine news, and this week, again, some good news. AstraZeneca and Oxford University released some early data saying that their vaccine candidate, on average, is about 70% effective against coronavirus. In some cases, depending on the dosing, it can be up to 90% effective. In their findings, they found out that if you gave a half dose for the first shot and a full dose for the second shot, the effectiveness rose up to 90%. This vaccine candidate is also cheaper to make and can be stored at normal refrigeration temperatures, which will make it very easy to ship and store. For more on the latest vaccine results, we'll speak to Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. It seems like every Monday morning lately we've been getting vaccine news, which has been nice, right? I mean, we're all getting ready to start the week and we get a little dose of good news. Exactly. Um, so, right. So, like you said, this vaccine is being developed by AstraZeneca and University of Oxford over in the U.K., and so this analysis is actually it's actually an, an interim analysis, an early look at two different studies that they conducted, one in Brazil, one in the UK with about 11,000 participants. And yeah, on average, the efficacy here was 70.4 percent. So let's get into that, because and you did mention there was a two different arms of this study, one in the UK, one in Brazil, and they were using different dosing methods. I think in the UK, they were doing a half dose first, then a full dose. And in Brazil, they were doing two full doses each time separated by about a month. But they got different results on that. Right. And it is a little confusing. As I was trying to write the story about these data this morning, very early this morning, I I was a little bit confused by it. But you're right. So you're essentially correct, right? They have two different dosing regimens here. When the participants got two full doses of the vaccine spread out by one month apart, the efficacy was 62%, so a little bit lower than the average. When patients received a half dose initially and then received a full dose, the efficacy was 90%. So the question is that was initially raised by this is why would a starting with a half a dose and then going to a full dose, why would those results look better than when you got two full doses? And the answer to that question is not entirely clear yet. And it's even more confusing when we learn later in the day that actually this sort of half dose, full dose regimen that they're using was sort of a mistake. It came out of some dosing errors in the UK. And when they discovered this, this was months ago, when they discovered this in the clinical trial, they just continued with it. So it's a little bit confusing. And I think these are some of the things, some of the questions that still need to be answered, like to just sort of better accurately understand what the efficacy of this vaccine actually is. Wow, what a lucky break if that ends up being like the dosing regimen that you need. (laughs) And, you know, some experts, you know, guys like Dr. Fauci said that maybe that half dose kind of primes the body a little bit better to receive the full dose and things like that. So, you know, it kind of makes sense in that sense of it. Uh, In the United States, we do have a trial going on. That one was put on pause for a little while. But I think they're going to make some changes to try to explore that half dose, full dose regimen here. AstraZeneca is running a large study in the United States with the same vaccine. That was the study that had been halted for a little while because of uh, a side effect that popped up in a single participant. They had to halt it and they had to get clearance to restart that study. That study is now restarted. So 
it looks like they may try to alter or amend the study design to kind of look at this half-dose, full-dose regimen to see what kind of efficacy they can get out of that here in the U.S. There are a lot of other pluses that go with this vaccine candidate as well, though. It's a lot easier to store. It's cheaper to make. So a lot of people are saying this could be really good for lower to middle income countries. But there's this kind of thing. Well, why would you know, why would we give people a vaccine that's only 70 percent effective versus one that's 95 percent effective like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine candidates? But as you mentioned at the very beginning, this is interim data. So this could change. These numbers could change still. Right. Yeah. These numbers can definitely change as we get more data. I mean, we're not looking at very many cases here that they're basing this analysis on. So the data could definitely change as they accrue more cases in the study. And, you know, look, it's difficult to compare vaccines against each other, even though everybody wants to do it. Right. Like you mentioned, the Moderna vaccine, you know, 95 percent efficacy. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, 95% efficacy. So on the very simplistic comparison, you look at those and you say, wow, those are so much better than what we're seeing out of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But again, there are different types of vaccine. They're made differently. As you mentioned, there are advantages to the AstraZeneca vaccine in terms of storage, and it can be refrigerated. It's very easily shipped and stored just in a, in a standard refrigerator. So that's going to be beneficial for places where you know you can't do the deep freeze kind of storage that is required for the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. It's also going to be a lot cheaper. So there's going to be hard, difficult choices that have to be made with these vaccines because I don't think that you can expect all the vaccines to have exactly the same efficacy or safety. So, you know, there's a lot of people in this world who need to get vaccinated. Um, And (laughs) so there's going to be some decisions that will have to be made in that regard. Definitely. But like you said, everybody wants to make those direct comparisons, even though, you know, you can't really do that. This vaccine and the other two leading vaccines are made completely different. The other two use messenger RNA. This uses an adenovirus, which is also kind of a newer newer method too to traditional vaccines. But still, I mean, this is all very promising that these different types of vaccines are working. Maybe to put it in perspective, you know, when the FDA issued their guidelines for what they wanted to see out of a COVID vaccine, sort of the bottom end of the range was around a 50% efficacy, right? That's kind of the minimum that they wanted to see. So here you have one, and now we don't really know where the AstraZeneca is going to shake out. Is it 60, 70, you know, 80%? I mean, it's still well within the range of an approvable vaccine. Maybe it'll be 90. We don't know yet. But I mean, I think the thing you can take away from this is, is, you know, this is the third vaccine candidate and it looks encouraging. And, you know, I think that's what we all want to see as we try to emerge from this pandemic. Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. On the political front this week, the General Services Administration approved the Biden transition to begin. And with that, President-elect Joe Biden announced his nominees for his top national security team. Some of the names include Tony Blinken for Secretary of State, Alejandro Mayorkas for DHS Secretary, Avril Haines for Director of National Intelligence, and John Kerry as Climate Envoy. These picks all represent the establishment and have often pushed for policies that President Trump used to fuel his rise. For more on this, we'll speak to Carol Morello, diplomatic correspondent at The Washington Post. They represent the establishment here in Washington. In some ways, it's a real repudiation of a lot of President Trump's policies. But it's not like they all grew up as part of the establishment. Many of them, like Jake Sullivan, is from Minnesota and still has deep roots there. 
Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who's going to be the next U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, comes from Louisiana and went to school there and talks about practicing gumbo diplomacy that she would cook up for people. So a lot of these are very down-to-earth people. Maybe not all of them, but they have now become part of the Washington establishment. It's for a lot of people, it's a return to normalcy. These are all smart, experienced people who are sophisticated in the world and are kind of internationalists, which is just a fancy word of saying they think the United States needs to get together with like-minded countries with allies and work on global problems together that the United States alone can't solve them. But they realize that the world has changed in four years and there's going to have to be some recalibration. Yeah, when President Trump came into power, it was very much made pretty clear that he wanted to reverse a lot of things that President Obama did. And I guess with some of these picks, Joe Biden is doing some of the same. But as you just mentioned, the world is a completely different place now. And these people, these picks that he's making, understand that. And they know that they have to contend with some of the things that President Trump has changed. Yes, you're absolutely right. I was talking with a former State Department official yesterday who knows all these people very well. And he said he keeps telling people, reminding them of the story of Lot, who was fleeing with his wife from Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife ignored the Lord's order and turned around and looked backwards and turned into a pillar of salt. And he said, we can't look backwards. We know we can't look backwards or we'll all become a pillar of salt. There are some things they're probably going to do quite immediately, like I believe Biden has has already said that he wants to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords on day one. But other things will take some time. A lot of these people are part of the establishment that has, you know, kind of changed as well. But it's important to note that they do have a lot of relationships with a lot of Republican lawmakers, which we would hope that that would smooth over some of the confirmation hearings. But we can hopefully see maybe some bipartisanship working out through there. The allies know them as well. So they're going to be ready to step in and start working. The the learning curve for them will be a lot quicker, basically. Some of them are so well, obviously, John Kerry's met almost, you know, when he was Secretary of State, he met almost every leader in the world, you know, but he is not going back as Secretary of State. He's going back to be basically climate change czar. And that's really his greatest passion. And he was instrumental in getting the United States and negotiating the Paris Climate Accord that President Trump withdrew from. He also was the key negotiator in pushing through the Iran nuclear deal, which Trump called the worst agreement ever negotiated. But Kerry will have nothing to do with Iran. He will have everything to do with climate. And I think that attitudes in the United States have changed since 2016 about climate change with all the wildfires and the floods and all the hurricanes and everything that's been happening. So there is definitely going to be some sort of a immediate reversal there. That's clear. But the others, Jake Sullivan, who's going to be the national security advisor, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, both of them are well-known. Tony Blinken, they're all known all across the world. They have contacts. They can pick up the phone. It's not going to be like People will be meeting them for the first time and saying, who is this person? How can I get along with them? They already have relationships with people. It's a very experienced group. President-elect Biden has said that he wants to make his cabinet uh, very diverse and reflect America. We do have some firsts in this as well. And Alejandro Mayorkas, he's going to be the nation's first Latino Homeland Security Secretary. And Avril Haines, she's going to be the 
first female director of national intelligence. She was a former deputy director of the CIA. So we do have some big firsts in there as well. We have some big firsts there, and there are probably more to come in coming days. This is just the national security team, which has relied heavily on uh, experienced people who tend to be older. So in coming days and weeks, we're probably going to see some newer faces who are going to be introduced to America. So we have a lot more first coming, I think. But this is some indication that he wants people to tell him what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear. Well, it'll be interesting to keep following this and see how President-elect Joe Biden continues to build his team. So we'll just keep on it and, and keep an eye out for it all. Carol Morello, diplomatic correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And while the Biden transition has begun, President Trump still has refused to concede the election. His legal team has been a mess in fighting the outcome of the election with no real evidence of a widespread effort to steal the election. The legal team even took the steps of ousting Sidney Powell, one of the lawyers who appeared with Rudy Giuliani, and pushed some of the most outlandish conspiracy theories about the elections, including that some Republican governors were part of the plot. It seems that might have been a step too far. For more on the legal team shakeup, we'll speak to Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. So it's pretty clear that Sidney Powell was enmeshed in the legal team. President Trump himself had touted her as being part of his very capable group that was going to be guiding this. Essentially what happened is immediately after the election, he had some real lawyers, real actual law firms filing cases on his behalf, none of which alleged the sort of fraud that Giuliani has since been talking about or Trump himself was talking about, obviously because there isn't any evidence that that occurred. Those lawyers dropped off over time after losing cases and after it became apparent that uh, they were being asked to do the impossible. So the team got narrowed down to Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, who'd worked with his campaign, Sidney Powell, preeminently among them. Powell, it's worth noting, had come from defending Michael Flynn, uh, where she, Michael Flynn sort of changed lawyers midstream. Powell encouraged him to retract his guilty plea in the, in the whole Russia probe thing that he was involved in. Her work for Flynn was also sort of suspect, and she's been tied to QAnon, and, you know, and there are all these reasons that right. think it was an odd choice in general. I know I'm giving you more background than you actually asked for, but it's important to have that context, because then she comes, joins the legal team, uh, stands alongside Rudy Giuliani last week at this press conference, and really does make truly bizarre allegations about what happened, but allegations which are no less wrong than the ones that are being made by Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) She went on to sort of attract a lot of attention for what she said, and I think that's probably what doomed her. Yeah, I mean, part of what she said, and, and, you know, uh, I think one of the big parts is that she started saying that there's uh, Republican governors, like uh, I think it was Republican Governor Brian Kemp, saying that he might have been involved in some of this. I think those were kind of those steps that took it a little too far. But, I mean, her overall thing, and help me walk through this part of it, too, just because You know, you have to understand what it is. She's alleging some elaborate conspiracy that could include the former Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez, who died in 2013, that's connected with these Dominion voting systems, that these were changing all sorts of votes from President Trump to Joe Biden. So this is kind of the overarching thing. And now she was saying that, you know, some of the governors, Republican governors, were also taking kickbacks, payments to help with this whole effort. So her theory was was that, yes, that there are these voting machines that could be manipulated to change voting results and that people paid for the privilege to have that done and that this was tied back to Venezuela. That's generally her argument. It's 
total and utter nonsense from start to finish. I mean, in, from the standpoint that the Dominion machines weren't used as widely as she claims, to the fact that they don't have the capability that she alleges, to the fact that it doesn't make any sense that if the whole point is they're committing this fraud by changing ballots, why do they need to do this if they have these electric machines in the first place? To the whole point about Venezuela, there was a company called Smartmatic, which was formed by Venezuelan interests that owned a different company, then gave up that company, which Dominion later bought. That's the connection to Venezuela. Wow. I mean, so it's not even <laughs> any sort of direct link. It's just all absolute garbage. And not only is it absolute garbage, but it's obviously garbage. In the same way that the allegations, I, you know, I hasten to bring it back to Giuliani, everything Giuliani said is similarly garbage, but is less sort of bizarre and outside the box than what Powell's been alleging. To that point also, you know, uh, Fox News, who has been kind of uh, touting some of this stuff, Tucker Carlson on that network gave Sidney Powell the chance to come on the show and explain it. He asked for evidence. She didn't supply it. And then he had to go on air and say, well, there is no evidence there. So, you know, there's a lot kind of going back and forth. What did the legal team actually say about, or, you know, when they tried to distance themselves from her? I mean, it was just sort of a curt statement saying that she wasn't part of the team. She was sort of working on her own behalf. They left it unclear whether or not they were trying to allege that she had never worked with the legal team, which obviously is hard to defend, or whether they were saying they'd sort of cut her loose at that point. Your point about Fox News is important. I think one of the issues here is Tucker Carlson very much wanted her to be presenting him with something he could use, right? He yeah. has been absolutely amplifying a lot of the other claims, including these nonsense claims about dead people having voted. He got called out for one such incident in which the person wasn't at all dead and he had to apologize on air. He wanted this to be true. And I think part of the challenge that Powell had is Giuliani's been playing this game for a long time. He's made a lot of appearances on a lot of cable news networks. He knows how to say just enough to have people consider him to be somewhat credible without actually revealing that he doesn't have any evidence undergirding what he's saying. Powell, I don't think, knew how to do that. And so I think she was sort of presented with what, in a lot of other contexts, someone from Trump's team could come to Fox News and say, hey, hey we've got these allegations we want to raise. Here's just enough to keep you on the hook and then get on air. Powell, I think, just didn't know how to play that game and we landed where we are. What does the Trump legal team have left in the tank? I mean, as I mentioned, they're suffering a lot of losses in court. Nothing's panning out for them, really. What else can they resort to right now? I don't know. They keep losing cases. It is, I think they're 1 in 34 as of this moment in terms of their legal case record. And the one win was that they had that sort of the window of considering votes scaled back from 90s to three days, something along those lines. They don't have a lot of options because they don't have a lot of evidence because this didn't happen, right? I mean, that's the, that's the through line. So Donald Trump said before the election that the only way he would lose is if there was fraud. And now he's trying to prove that the only way he lost was fraud, but there's no evidence for it. So, you know, now we're hearing reports from NBC News, for example, that Trump is sort of frustrated with his legal team in general. But there's no one who could win this because it didn't happen, right? You know, I mean, it's not like... You know, I'll, I'll qualify that only moderately by saying, you know, who knows, maybe some massive evidence will emerge right. showing that something suspect had occurred. But we haven't seen any of that. And so any lawyer who is trying to defend Donald Trump on the merits of something that's false or unprovable is not going to be successful. And if the only people who are willing to stand up for you are people like Rudy Giuliani, who will just say what you want him to say, yeah, he's not going to do a good job because what he's going to say are things that courts are going to throw out. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. We'll be right back.